Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to Psalm 73. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that starting on page 485. We're going to start just by reading the first 13 verses, and then we'll continue reading through the sermon. First, Psalm 73, verses 1 through 13. Beloved saints, the grass does wither and the flower fades, but this, his word, is eternal and it lasts forever and it deserves our attention. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Sends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us pray that God would be pleased to meet us in his word and speak to us through it. Heavenly Father, you have told us that all flesh is like the grass. It is a breath, and then it is gone. And yet in our hands we hold something eternal, something that was around long before us and will be around long after us. Your word abides forever. Grant that we would give our undivided attention to it, that we would receive it and all that it has to say, and that our beliefs, our understanding, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, who is the word made flesh. Amen. You may be seated. Toward the end of the psalm, we'll read these words. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those are beautiful words. Uh, They capture the heart of faith. A heart that cries out, Jesus, take everything else away if you must, so long as I have you. That is enough. Such faith, such commitment, such peace. We admire those words. We long to be able to say them 
But the simple reality is that we are not quite sure we could at least say them and mean them. We wonder if we were really tested, if I lost everything, if I lost everyone, if all I had was God, would that be enough? Would my faith survive? Or would I fall away? In our most honest moments, we wonder how resolute our faith is. Do we follow God for God or for what we think he can give us? Do we truly believe Our calling is to serve him, or when push comes to shove, do we think his calling is to serve us? Is our loyalty only as secure as our creature comforts, is the question we wrestle with. Isn't that what Satan accused Job of? Do you remember what he said to God? He says, does... Job, fear God for no reason. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. His commitment is only as secure as his creature comforts. There's the challenge. Take away his comfy life and see what he's really made of. Now, we all from the sidelines cheer for Job. (laughs) Don't give up. Don't give in. Stand strong. Persevere. We root for the underdog. But what happens when it's our creature comforts that are stripped away? That's what Psalm 73 is all about. As we look at it, my hope is to drive home maybe just one point, and it's this. Sometimes it's only when life's comforts are stripped that we can most clearly see what is truly important. Sometimes that's when we see things most clearly, when all the distractions and comforts are stripped away. As we read this psalm, uh, maybe it's the thoughts in verse 1 that are the least surprising in the psalm. God is good to those who are pure of heart. And we think, that is shocking to no one. That's the bedrock of what we believe. And I don't just mean us as Christians. There is something about that statement that resonates with everyone, every human heart. We believe there is good and there is evil and we champion what is good. We root for it. We want it to win. And in our heart of hearts, we know that that means it must reflect something higher, something more ultimate, something more transcendent. Even those who deny God allow that, well, if there really is a God, he must stand for what is good and oppose what is evil. We know that good is good and bad is bad. There's a general agreement that virtue should be rewarded and vice should be punished. We're raised on the promise that cheaters never prosper. 
That's verse 1. We like it. We agree. We say amen. But reality does not always match up with our expectations, our assumptions. What we believe should be and what actually is are seldom the same. And that's what the first half, the first 13 verses of Psalm 73 wrestle with. In the real world, it's often the wicked who prosper, verse 3. They, verse 4, know no hunger. You might be surprised by them being called fat. In, that, in those days, that's a compliment. That means they can afford food. They seem to operate by a different set of rules than the rest of us. Their traffic tickets disappear. They go to better schools. When it comes time to find a career, opportunities find them. Worse than that, they seem to be able to do whatever they want. They mistreat others and they get away with it. Their lives are always at ease. They grow ever richer. They seem to possess a peace that we think should belong to the honest alone. And they even mock God without batting an eye. And nothing happens. Fire doesn't come down from heaven and devour them. They seem untouchable, not just by earthly justice, but by the very heavenly justice that they mock daily in their lives. If you don't know what the psalmist is talking about, your eyes are closed. This reality seems to be everywhere present. It is unavoidable. And it strikes at that core belief that God stands for what is good and that he protects the pure of heart, verse 1. And all of that can lead to a crisis of faith. So faith, let's define terms. Faith is what you believe to be true and inalterable in your heart of hearts. Faith gets at your most core convictions, what you believe governs the universe, what you trust to be true, what guides your life and your most important decisions. A crisis of faith is when you question those most fundamental beliefs. When you question whether your beliefs that guide your life are actually true. When you see the wicked prosper, when you see the honest suffer, eventually we start to ask if God is really good to those who are pure in heart, if the good always win, and if doing what is right is really worth it. Let's read verses 14 through 17. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The psalmist erupts at first. It's all in vain. I've tried. I did what was right. I walked the harder road. And my life just kept getting harder. The wicked, those who don't care about you, they're doing just fine. 
It doesn't add up. The pieces don't fit. And, and for a few minutes, he tries to make sense out of all of it, try to figure it out, to find a rational explanation. But it just exhausts him. It makes him want to give up, to surrender to those who say, if you want something, you have to go out and take it and not worry about who gets hurt in the process. And then exhausted, where does he go? He wanders into the temple. It's like every movie you've ever seen, right? When there's nowhere else to turn, when the chips are down, when the world is against them, where do they always seem to end up? In a church, looking for answers, trying to make sense out of it. And that's where the psalmist finds himself, in the sanctuary, the temple. And that's when everything changes. So let's read the last Uh, 10 or 11 verses, verses 18 through 28. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. And ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord Yahweh my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. As the psalmist enters the sanctuary, the first thing he says is that he discerned the end of the wicked. That the temple... In Israel, first the tabernacle and later the temple, intentionally made some things visible that you couldn't perceive in your ordinary daily life. Around the edges, on the walls or the curtains at the edges, were pictures of fiery angels, cherubim. And these were meant to remind people of just how holy God is and that he takes his holiness seriously. Now, of course, these are just pictures, but pictures of reality. The temple, as we heard, in heaven, or or the temple is a picture of, of God's heavenly throne room, as we heard in the call to worship this morning in Isaiah 6. It is surrounded by actual fiery angels. Terrifying. They guard the way to the presence of God. And they allow nothing to pass them that is impure or unclean. Their very presence in the temple is a sobering reminder of just how serious God is about his holiness and how he protects it. But these are things we can't see with the naked eye. And so it's easy to forget. And and if we forget to, to live as if they were somehow less true than the things we do see, But of course, that's not the case. 
One of the biggest dangers in life is believing something that is not true and then living and acting according to that belief. It's like mistaking a dream for reality. Believing you can fly when you can't and acting on it. Thinking that the success of the wicked is the only reality can have dire consequences. Coming into the temple, the psalmist is shaken out of his stupor and like cold water splashed on his face, he awakens to a greater reality. God is and he is holy. And then there it was, the center of the temple, the very heart of the sanctuary, the mercy seat where the sacrifices of Israel were laid. And the mercy seat communicates two important realities. The first is what sin deserves, death. From the very beginning, God has made it clear that any and all rebellion against him deserves death. The smallest failure to do what he has commanded, the smallest lie, any unrighteous anger, rebellion against parents, failure to worship God correctly, misusing his name, a covetous thought or a lustful glance. All rebellion is worthy of death. Physical death, the end of your body, spiritual death, alienation from God, and ultimately eternal death, damnation for all time in hell. The mercy seat is where death was made visible and with it the end of all men. We're all headed to death. As the psalmist enters the temple, he sees that, he knows that's where we're headed. What then? The wicked may prosper for a time. They may grow wealthy and appear to evade accountability, but their end is clear. They are on slippery ground. They will fall and utterly be swept away. That is the truth that the psalmist is forced to remember as he enters into the sanctuary. But the second thing that the mercy seat drives home is that there is hope for sinners. With God, there is always hope. There's forgiveness. There's a way to escape judgment that we all deserve. Because the mercy seat is is where that sacrifice was laid as a substitute for the sinner. I deserve death, but God will take the death of another in my place. Ultimately, God would have to offer a sacrifice infinitely more valuable than than a lamb or, or a goat or a bird or a calf. To save his people, those he loves, he would have to send his own son to die as their substitute in their place. Though perfectly righteous, Jesus, his son, though he was pure in heart, he was horribly mistreated. He was mocked, spit upon, lied about, and savagely beaten. He never owned a nice house. He never had a vacation getaway by the sea. 
Unlike the rich who are never held accountable for their crimes, he was made to pay for crimes he never committed. And all of this he did for those who would draw near to him for grace and for forgiveness. He did this so that we might receive salvation. We who could not save ourselves, that he might grant us mercy and grace and save us from the eternity we deserve. He did this so that our eternities would not be like our lives lived under the oppressive hands of the wicked. Suddenly the psalmist sees how close he came to going down a very foolish road. When he focused on the ease and the comfort of the wicked, he was tempted to join them. And who wouldn't be? When he thought only about how hard his life was, his soul grew bitter, verse 21. And he almost said, if they're going to have it so much better, I might as well join them. But as he came into the temple, as he stood in God's presence, the light pushed back the darkness and the confusion and the unseen realities became visible, the forgotten truths were remembered, and a spotlight was shown on his foolishness. He had been acting like an animal that can only see the end goal of comfort and act what is based on what's right in front of the animal. In other words, he's confessing he lost all human reason. Everything that makes him unique in creation, the very image of God he ignored in the pursuit of fleeting pleasure. But standing in God's presence, it all came flooding back. And he realized that in the midst of the mistreatment, God had never been far off. Verse 23, you hold my right hand. Who's been carrying me through this hard time? God, verse 24, had been guiding the psalmist down a road that does not end in ruin. What profit is there in gaining the entire world if you forfeit your soul? The wicked are partying and oblivious to the fact that ruin awaits. Is that better? Are they truly better off? In their arrogance, they mock the God to whom they must one day stand before and give an account. Would you trade places with them? When you have this kind of clarity, everything is suddenly put into perspective. When you are only concerned with your comfort, your wealth, and how people see you, whether or not you feel important, then any discomfort is unbearable. But when you look upon the face of God, it's then that you suddenly realize only one thing matters, that you have peace with him. And then your personal health, the size of your bank account, 
how many days you spend above the grass, they all cease to be as ultimate. What matters is what lasts, what is ultimate, what is eternal. And sometimes it takes the stripping away of the things that you think you need in order to learn what you truly need. And that's how it was for Job. As God stripped away all his earthly blessings, he eventually learned that all that that truly mattered was that he had God. And that's why God allows you to not be blessed like the wicked. It's then and it's only then that you learn to confess with Psalm Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. If God is your greatest good, then then you can hold on to everything else loosely. It is good to enter the sanctuary and to be reminded of these things, lest you fall into a dreamlike state and think that what you see around you tells the whole story. But of course, you don't have a temple to enter into. There's no angelic tapestries for you to see, no mercy seat to behold. Or is there? Hebrews tells us that when we gather for worship, we enter into God's presence. That he meets with us and his angels. And here God takes us by the hand and he reminds us of the truth, things that we can't see but are no less true. Beloved, we forsake gathering for worship to our detriment. The longer we go between entering in the easier it is to forget. It's then that we focus on the immediate comfort or discomfort of our lives. It's then that we seek the prosperity of the wicked and we grow jealous. It's then that we are tempted to question God. But when we gather for worship, we come face to face with the greatest truth that if we have God, we truly have all we need. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your reminders. We confess that we are so easily distracted. We look around and we see the wealth, the comfort, the recognition of others, and we grow jealous. And jealousy gives birth to discontentment and discontentment bitterness. Had we kept our eyes on you, that would never have been the case. And so we ask that you would forgive our wandering eyes and teach us to confess, to believe that there is nothing in heaven that we desire but you and nothing on earth we long for but to possess you. That we would believe in our heart of hearts that if we have you, we truly have all we need. We want to believe. Help our unbelief, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.